0: Father, thank you for this opportunity to share this time together today. I pray that your spirit will be with us in a very special way, um, as we look at the subject of the, of the covenant and what this means to you. And uh, while this is a heady subject, God, and it's, it's not easy, I pray that you'll um, somehow uh, make that translation from our heads and the, and the, heart, just the, the technical stuff we have to look at and uh, apply it to our hearts. We know if that happens, it'll be the work of your spirit. And so we're very dependent upon you, God. We're dependent upon your Holy Spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. To take this more than just, just academic knowledge and to somehow make, it, uh, make a difference in our lives. Um, I know that no one's come to this conference just for, to gain a little knowledge. Um, they've come to have an impact on their lives and we don't want this seminar to be any different and other things you're doing at this conference. So um, and we're dependent on you, God, for that. I cannot do it, nor can just information do it. But your spirit um, loves to do it. So thank you, we're, we're depending on you and, and thanking you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, um, here's what I would like to do. I don't know, uh, if did you bring Bibles? How many here, how many Bibles do we have? Okay. Um, <clears throat> The way this works best is if there's participation. So if we're up close together, I'd like to be passing this. Actually, if we only have this many, it's not going to be too difficult to hear each other. But, but uh, uh, they would th- well, they would also like it on tape because this is, this is being audio tape. So we do need we do need it on audio tape. I don't want to just be up here talking the whole time. I want your participation. What that's going to mean is you're going to need to be reading. I have material I need to communicate. Ordinarily, when I do this, when I'm asked to go to a workers meeting and speak to ministers or to groups now, I asked for a minimum of six to eight hours to do this. So now we've got less than three. So we're gonna be moving. I'm gonna be moving quite rapidly. Um, and uh, what I do want is for you to read the scriptures. If you can help with that, you read the scriptures. If you have your Bibles and I don't, I don't know if this chapel has Bibles, I didn't see any, but in order to do that, we need to, those who are closest and you can just hand the mic down I'll have you guys read the scriptures if you're willing to do that. If you'd rather not read a scripture, just pass, it on to, pass the mic on to the next person. And we're gonna start out by talking about what the issues are in the covenants, in the old and new covenants. Why does this even matter? Why even care about the old and new covenants? Um, and so to start with, I just wanna kind of give you what I, what I understand to be, the uh, after my research in this area, what I understand to be the, the uh, basic evangelical model. You understand what I mean by evangelical? The, the uh, fundamental Christian understanding of the Old and New Covenants. And I think we can get that rather quickly, but we, we need to nail this down because this is what makes the subject relevant is when you, when you see this and you can, you can understand this. Um, So let's turn, first of all, somebody, uh, Genesis 15. Let's start over on this side. What we'll do, we'll just alternate sides with the microphone. Genesis 15, verses six and 18. And somebody over here will be ready to go with Deuteronomy chapter four and verse 12 and 13 and five verses two and three. Did you get the outline when you came in? Yes. Okay, so we're on page one. We're starting right at the top and we're gonna start working our way through. I may need to, I'll be skipping some stuff later on, but, but for now, we'll just follow right on through and we'll just go bang, bang, bang and read, read several scriptures here together. Genesis chapter 15, verses 6 and 18, as soon as somebody has that, if you would read that please. Genesis 15, 6 and 18, right over here.
1: And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land for
0: to the river, the river of okay, so this is a covenant of uh, faith because Abraham believed God, and God counted, counted it to him for righteousness. And it's a uh, God made promises to Abraham, so it's a covenant of promise and also a covenant of grace. Uh, um, theologians say, it's a grace covenant because Abraham wasn't in those particular instances we just read, wasn't asked to do anything. He put his faith in God. God made certain promises to him and that's the very nature of grace. Uh, Okay, let's go to the next one now, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter chapter 4 and verse 13 and give just a moment for people to turn to that because we're going to read another covenant here that God made with, with His people. Uh yes, go ahead. Okay.
1: Um chapter uh chapter four verse twelve. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the word, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you declare to you his covenant, the ten commandments, which he commanded you to follow. then you wrote them
0: on to you still cabinets. Okay. So that's for Deuteronomy chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. Chapter five, and chap- two three. Mm-hmm. Yes, chapter five, verses two and three. That's, that's two and three? Okay. So what did, uh, what is this covenant called? What's it called in the, in the scripture we just read here? There's a name given it to it. The law, yes. And even more specifically? Ten the 10 commandments, right? Does it say that? Where does it say that?
2: 412 it says he wrote um, he declared to use his covenant the 10 commandments which he you to follow and then he wrote them on
0: the... <clears throat> okay so here we have here we have uh, um, another covenant that God made with his people a covenant that he made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai and this was a covenant it was it, the 10 commandments were they were the kernel of the covenant Now there was more to it than that but the 10 commandments were the heart of it and of emphasis on obedience. And so there's something a little looks uh, uh, not exact a perfect match here, but what does it also say about the relationship of this covenant God made to the relationship he made with their fathers? It's not the same. It's not the same, right? It's not the same one. So there's something different about this. Now let's skip over to uh, Hebrews chapter 8 in the New Testament. And we're back over on this side, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's just take a moment to turn to it. Hebrews chapter 8. And we're gonna read verses seven through nine and then verse 13, Hebrews chapter eight.
2: I took them by the hand and lead
0: them out of the land of Egypt. Yet they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 13. Verse 13. he says, a new covenant? made the Now what is an and old, is to All right. So what's the name of this covenant? New covenant. It's a new covenant, right? God says he's going to make a new covenant with, uh, with them. And this covenant again is characterized by most theologians of the covenant of, of faith. And we're gonna see it's very much a covenant of promise because it's, it's consisting of a series of promises that God gave his people. And uh, another grace-based covenant. And instead of, of the emphasis as much on law as was this particular covenant, it's an emphasis more on love as you, as you look at the New Testament and also the Holy Spirit. I realize that the passage we just read doesn't include love and in the Holy Spirit, or even the terms grace, but this is what, how this is characterized in the context of the New Testament. And what does it say is the relationship of this particular covenant, the new covenant, to the relationship of the covenant that he made with the people that he brought out of Egypt? It's
2: he, and the old one is dying
0: away. Okay. And what else, what else does he say? So says the old one is dying away, and what else does he say? Does it say? They
2: made the first
0: one obsolete. Made it obsolete, and what else? In verses 7 through 9, what does it say there? How does this covenant relate to the ones that were... It's not the same as the first one, right? So, what we have is the covenant made with Abraham. We have a covenant made with... That's grace-based covenant. We have a covenant made with Israel at Sinai that God said is not like the one that He made with their fathers. Is that, is that true? Is that what that said? Did we read that? Yes, it is. And then he says he's going to make a new covenant with them, and that covenant is not going to be like what? It's not going to be like what?
2: The
0: old one. Doesn't say the old, the old one.
2: The one he made with with the fathers coming out of Egypt.
0: Yes, it says he's, he's. This is not like the one that he made with those that he brought out of Egypt, right? So can you already see why why? Evangelical theologians would say there's something different about this covenant. It's not like the one he, it's not like the one they made God made with their fathers. It's not like the new covenant. It's different than the new covenant. Can you understand, can you see that? Okay. Now let's go to uh, several other New Testament passages real quick. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verses 1 through 6 and if you're willing to be part of our reading group here that's reading the scriptures for us if you'd scoot forward and just get a little closer because we're passing the mic around. Okay, Romans seven verses one through six, please. By the way, would you would you do this? Uh, I haven't asked you to do this previously. Um, would you tell us what translation you're reading from? Okay. Everybody, when you read, when it's your turn to read, let us know what translation you're reading from. We'll have a variety of translations here, I'm sure. I'm reading from the New King James. New King James, okay. Okay. All right. So this does not say, does it, that, that when it's talking about the law, it's specifically talking about the law God made with his people at Sinai, right? It doesn't specifically say that. It just talks about the law, right? But this is how evangelicals understand it. Once this model has kind of been set up like this, then they start feeding things into this model to kind of strengthen it. It's like, they, it's like they set some bricks and then, they, and then the mortar comes in and to, to strengthen it and make it, make it a real wall here. Um, so they say, once Christ comes, then we need to die to this covenant, need to die to the law covenant, and in order to be able to be married to Christ. Um, so if this is not like the, promise that, like the covenant that he made with Sinai, and if the New Testament is beginning to say, once Christ comes, then we need to die to this in order to, in order to be able to have this experience, so you see something kind of building here, right? Okay, let's go to Galatians chapter four when Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians in chapter four, and we'll be over on this side over here. Galatians chapter four. I have a question real quick. Uh, and somebody will be reading verses 21 through chapter five, verse one. Question.
1: When you're saying challenging uh, text, yes. does that mean challenging the text we just read?
0: What I'm saying, these are, these, these are challenging texts to those who believe that the Ten Commandments still matter, yeah, and particularly the Sabbath, um, that's really what's that issue in the in the whole dialogue over the covenant, over the, the commandments. Because most of the commandments come back in the New Testament anyway, but the Sabbath is is one that they that evangelicals say is retired. and It was retired when the old covenant was retired. Is what they're that's that's the position that's taken here. So we're, 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 first of all, we're trying to understand where they're coming from <clears throat> and not to understand it critically, but to just understand how people why they believe this. It's not like they're just dumb, and they're not thinking, and they're just blind, it's the way they're understanding these scriptures. And before we can understand where they're coming from and can, and can feel a little bit about what they're feeling, we can't really appreciate the whole issue here that we're talking about. Uh, yes, okay, let's go ahead, please. Are you we're recording it. I don't
1: think this mic's even
0: on. Um, I don't know where our mic person is. They're telling me that this microphone is not on. It's on, but
1: it's not coming through the system.
0: Oh, it's not coming. Okay. I don't know if it needs to be on for your purpose, for the purposes of the, of the. Uh, oh, you know what? We're not getting the we're not getting the Bible reading on the audio verse. What's that? Okay. Good. Okay, so if the go go ahead with what you got, and he's he'll take care of it there for us. Okay, Galatians chapter four, beginning with verse twenty one through chapter five and verse one, right on through.
1: All right, I'm reading from the New King James Version. (coughs) Okay. Tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants: the one, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai and Erebia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a a husband. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh and persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman. And her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not bear her, bear the be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the, fr- of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage.
0: <clears throat> All right. So here he actually gets specific about what he's talking about, right? And what's the? What are the? What's the, what's one covenant that he very clearly identifies? The one on Mount Sinai. Does Mount Sinai get a lot of real positive marks in this passage we just read? It doesn't, does it? So once you've seen this set up, this model set up like this, then it seems to fit. There is something different. Appears to be different about this covenant, right? It appears to be that way. And here it's called bondage, it's called of the flesh, it's called a whole series of things that are relatively negative. And he says, if if once we come to the new covenant age, and I'm talking like an evangelical, okay, now, but once we come to the new covenant age, once Christ has come, if you try to go back to anything in this system here, you're putting people in what? In bondage, you're taking them away from the freedom and liberty that Christ has brought and you're putting them back into bondage, right? So can you see how this seems to fit? If I was giving a Bible study to somebody and I was just and, and they were basically biblically illiterate and I was just picking these passages and going through, you'd see how it seems to fit, right? Okay. All right, let's do one more. Let's do 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Well let no, right, we're in Galatians, let's go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 22 to 25. And, okay. 20, uh, yeah, what did I have there? 22. 22 to 25.
2: But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given to the faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has
0: come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Okay. So can you see that? The, where, if I'm an evangelical scholar, and I'm explaining this to you, I'm saying what that says is that this was a, this was a, uh, a covenant God used. was kind of an intermediate covenant to get us to this, to this place here. And once it was kind of a tutor just to get us here. And once, this is, once we've gotten into the new covenant age, then we don't need the tutor anymore. Okay, can you see that? All right, let's go to Galatians, and uh, now 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians and chapter 3, I guess I should have done this in a little different order, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, going backwards now, one book, from Galatians to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, and somebody please read for us, over on this side, verses 4 through 16 of 2 Corinthians 3. Yes, 4 through 16, please, 2 Corinthians 3.
2: We have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient ourselves to think of anything at made from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit, for the for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel would not, could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the Spirit of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the hand of what was passing away, for their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains uplifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. All
0: right. So again, do we have uh, do we have the covenants here um, identified for us? Yes or no? Okay. And what are, what are the covenants in mind? What does it appear like the covenants in mind are here? The Ten Commandments. What would give you the idea the Ten Commandments are in mind? talks about engraved on stone. Okay. What's that? one was written and the other was engraved. Okay. All right. And, and is there another covenant in, in, in mind here as well?
1: Yeah, Moses' laws. The law of Moses that, he, that he
2: wrote, wrote down, the Not, besides the Ten Commandments, right?
0: The Ten Commandments in the, in the, and, and the other laws of Moses are in mind here? That's what this is talking about? Those are
2: written
0: down. What, does he, what does he say in verse? What does he call it in verse 6? <laughs> what else in verse 6? Yes, the new. Okay, the New Testament. Does your translation have the Testament? Because the NIV has covenant there. It's the same word in Greek. Testament and covenant are the same. So, Old Testament, Old 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 New Testament, or New, new Old Covenant, New Covenant. In, in, in essence, is a way, if you were to just translate it, that you could translate it either way, that way. Um, and the same in verse uh, 14, where uh, in chapter 3, verse 14. Some of your translations will say. Um, uh, Old Testament, in my translation NIV says, uh, says Old Covenant. Um, so translators can choose to do it either way. So he's contrasting here the covenant that was on stone, written on stone with the New Covenant or New Testament, right? Written on the heart. Yes, written on the heart. And which is written on the heart according to, according to this passage? It's the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant, the New Testament is written, <coughs> it's written on the heart. So uh, what we see is that th- this seems to be a pretty solidified uh, uh, model. And this is the model of the, of the covenants, and particularly the old and new covenants. When, when you're talking with p- probably a lot of people here in the South, and they talk about the covenants, um, this is what's in their mind when they're talking about this. Now, you may be aware that we've had many people leave the church in recent years over this issue. And the reason that they do is because they, haven't, they, haven't, they hadn't been exposed to this. And when they were exposed to it, if they grew up with, this, with, this, with the understanding that we have that the Ten Commandments are eternal and always important and therefore the Sabbath is eternal and important, um, and you know, it makes sense to them, God wrote it with his own finger and, and uh, um, who can question the Ten Commandments? And, uh, uh, but then when they're presented with, with this, information and it's driven home to them then it, they begin to question and unless there's a unless there's good explanations for this um, and I can tell you that uh, uh, when I first when I first got into this about 10 years ago for myself I'd read evangelical books and I'd read some of this these arguments but it came through a, a former Adventist minister who through this study among other things but this was the crux of it Um, and was was his main argument in his book against the Sabbath was was the Old and New Covenants. And that the Sabbath was Old Covenant. And when you come to the New Testament, the Old Covenant is obsolete. It's dead. It's putting people back in bondage if you try to put them back into into that system. Um, And uh, that it raised questions that I couldn't answer because of some of these passages. And so I began looking for information. It took me several years for myself to to find sufficient answers uh, for this question, and so since then, um, I've written a book on the subject and and uh, been been doing some speaking on it. Um, so we're here to, to look at this and, and see what what's uh, <clears throat> these passages seem to be so straightforward when you when you look at them, and read them. That what um, what are they saying? If they're not saying, if they're not saying that the covenant at Sinai is no longer is no longer valid. Um, but the new covenant is the, is valid. And if we even, if we ask people to be worshiping on, on the Sabbath, as we understand it, we're putting them back in bondage again. What's the answer to these, these, this challenge? Based on this, there have been a number of uh, um, evangelical scholars, even though it's not an easy position for them to come to, that have come to the conclusion that this is not a covenant based on that, that, uh, under which people can be saved. Or if they are saved, they're saved in a different way than they're saved in the new, new covenant. And I had a Presbyterian, young Presbyterian um, minister that was in one of the seminars I was doing. And um, we were talking about this and I was, uh, we sat at lunch together and we're talking and he had some questions about some things I was presenting. And uh, so I wanted to just see where he was in terms of, cause this is the model that he had in his own mind. He was educated in a Baptist seminary. I asked him, how was a person saved in the times of the Old Testament and during the, the time the 1500 years of the Sinai Covenant was in effect? And he said, uh, by keeping the law. I said, really, that's the way you understand they were saved? He said, yes, by keeping the law, it's quite clear. And so there are some theologians that are, and, and Bible students that have come to that conclusion. In fact, I just brought with me to read a brand new book that has just come out um, published in 2009 and someone sent me a notice of it so I ordered it I haven't even hardly gotten into it yet but I just read the conclusion of it and uh, and I didn't turn down that page so I can't turn to it immediately unfortunately but but it's called the end of the law Mosaic Covenant in Pauline theology and in the conclusion after a very very detailed study of these very passages we're talking about here <clears throat> he says it's quite clear from the Bible that the Mosaic Covenant, Sinai Covenant, was not a salvation covenant. Um, so you say, well, how are people saved? Well, they were saved outside of the covenant, not not inside the covenant, is the way that they understand it. And based on the passages that we just read. So what we wanna do is begin to begin to look at this from a perspective of other scriptures, and we're gonna come back to some of these scriptures, depending on the time that we have, and we're going to, to uh, Um, we're we're gonna look at some of those challenging scriptures that we've just looked at and see what could they possibly be meaning other than what it appears they appear to be meaning just on on face value. Um, And then before we go today, and by God's grace we will get to that, I'm gonna present to you a different model. It's not a simple model. Um, This is not a simple subject. It's not just a very easy subject. Um, there is a, a book available and a, study, and a study guide for small group study, to see if I even brought the book. Yes. Um, this is the book published by Andrews University Press in Granite or Ingrained, What the Old and New Covenants Reveal About the Gospel, the Law, and the Sabbath. What we're doing is hitting a few high points of the book and then the book, uh, if you ever want to get more into this you can order this online through Andrews University Press or I think Amazon has it as well and get more and get more into it and you'll see that the that we have uh, I've coordinated the outline along with the book and and like if you look at the bottom of the first page you'll see in granite and engrained chapter one is where that particular area is is uh, covered in more detail all right let's first first of all I want to ask the question about how many gospels there are in the Bible. And let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. Because the people were saved on a different basis during this period of time. Not everybody teaches that, but and there are many, there are many variations to this particular theme, this particular model of, of the covenants. But this is the this is the theme on which the variations come off of. And uh, many believe it just as we as we're describing it here, based on the scriptures that we've read. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter one, and where are we with the microphone right now? Right there. Galatians chapter one. Read verses six through nine of Galatians chapter one, please. Anyone preaches any other gospel to you, and what you have to see, let him be a Okay. How many gospels are there according to that? One, One gospel, right? Okay. Now what if uh, and what gospel does he say that is? Does he say the gospel of Christ? Is that what he's is that the language that's used? Okay. Um, the gospel of Christ. How how else does he describe that gospel? The grace of Christ. Grace of Christ. What else? Okay, it's the gospel of the grace of Christ. Um. And in verse 8, I'm thinking of a gospel which we, what? Which we preach to you, right? It's the gospel that Paul was preaching to them, right? So if there's any other gospel out there anywhere, um, what should happen to the people who are promoting that gospel? Yeah, they should be condemned, right? What if it's an angel though, that's out promoting that gospel? Same thing, right? What if Adam had taught a different gospel? What if Noah had taught a different gospel? What if Abraham had taught a different gospel? What if Moses had taught a different gospel? Same thing, right? There is only one gospel. And so, one very, very important passage is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 because that, that very clearly declares there's only one gospel. There are different ways God has saved people through. That. There are different gospels in the Bible. There's one gospel. They may understand it more fully as time goes on, uh, which we do, but it's essentially one gospel. Okay, um, uh, now, now somebody in, in, in one of my seminars or several of the seminars, people will say, yeah, but, that, but Paul's talking about the, his own day. He's not talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament could be different. Um, he's just talking about people in his day, if they're uh, the gospel that they had, the New covenant gospel. Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. So we're in Galatians. We're going now toward the book of Revelation, and uh, after the three Ts—the Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus—we have Hebrews chapter chapter four and verse two. It is chapter four. Hebrews chapter four and verse two. Where's our mic? Right over here. Hebrews chapter four and verse two, please. Okay, King James. Okay, now in order to understand what he's talking about there, we need to go back a little bit into this whole passage here begins with chapter 3 and verse 7. And it comes down through uh, where it really heats up. You get down to verse 16. Um, who were they who heard and rebelled? Was it not all that, that what? For chapter 3 and verse 16. Verses 16 and 17. And all that came out of Egypt. With those who came out of Egypt, right? Um, and who was, who was God angry with for 40 years? Those that he brought out of Egypt, right? So, he's talking about his own generation. He's talking about those that God brought out of Egypt, right? Okay, so now let's go, now read chapter 4 and verse 2 again. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Okay, so Paul is saying unto us, who live in this age, this, this generation, the gospel was preached, as well as unto who? Them. As well as unto them. And who's the them he's talking about? Egypt. He's talking about those that came out of Egypt. Those that God brought out of Egypt, right? So in other words, the gospel was preached to them because Paul, uh, I mean, the, the, the author of Hebrews, if it is Paul or whoever, says the gospel was preached to those who brought out of Egypt. So it's the same gospel in both eras. It's, a, it's essentially saying the same thing that, that, that Paul was saying uh, here and that is, that there is only one gospel, there only has been one gospel. And the gospel that was preached to them was preached to us. Or so the gospel that was preached to us was also the same gospel that was preached to them. So it's a, it's, it's a unified, one gospel. So therefore, whatever else can be said about this model, you cannot say there are different ways that God has, has had, had in mind to save people, or different, different standards God had for people by which, by which they're to be saved. And, and there's, only, there's only one gospel. Um, And so the same gospel was preached in both eras. Okay, and in Revelation 14, verse 6, that gospel has given a name. It's the everlasting gospel. Okay, so let's back up now and let's talk about... about, uh, what covenant is about? So we're we're up now. We're going back to number two on the list. We had skipped down to number three on your on your front page. We're going back to number two, and I've given four different models uh, for you here of uh, of covenant. And the first covenant is is uh, the first model is a legal covenant. And I've given you some scriptures here that that are relative to that legal covenant. In the in uh, In the days of the New Testament, there were two words that were used for covenant. One was, um, okay. and the other was diatheke. And syntheke was a negotiated covenant. Anybody here have a credit card? If you had a credit card or have ever had a credit card or your mortgage or you're buying a car, um, you understand what a synthetic covenant is where you have certain terms you have to agree to and you get certain benefits. Uh, you, You both have certain benefits, right, for being in that covenant and you negotiate on it. And the credit cards, you may not be able to negotiate with a particular company, but you can shop around, right? So you can... Try to get the best deal you can. And same thing when you, if you go, if you go to buy a car, um, you can either pay the sticker price or you can dicker a little bit, right? And what you're trying to do in a Synth-A-K covenant, you're trying to get the, the most benefit for yourself for the least investment that you make, right? That's what a Synth-A-K covenant is about. Um, <clears throat> negotiated covenant. And uh, now the other was a DFAK. And a DFAK was a will. It was also a legal covenant, but it was a will. And do you negotiate in a will? Generally not right. Um, it's 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 a one-way covenant. Now you have bene, you have benefactors in that will. Somebody makes the will, and, and you have many people that benefit from it, right? Or or whoever the the um, <clears throat> benefactors are, they're the ones that receive that. So of these two of these two covenants, which was which term do you think? Um, the New Testament writers and the Old Testament as well. Those who translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they chose one of these words as well. Which one do you think they chose to describe God's covenant with us? Diatheke, unanimously. It's always Diatheke. It's more like a will, right? And uh, we can think of his covenant as a will. It's, 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 it's what God has left us, what he bequeathed to us, in a sense. Um, okay, the second one is a... Um, servant slash slave and master uh, type of covenant. And I've given you a number of scriptures for that. You could also write, write down, uh, instead of Romans 8.1, write down Romans 1.1, where Paul calls himself a servant, servant of Christ or slave of Christ. And add to that Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, where guess who's called a servant there? In Philippians 2. Jesus is called a servant, right? So he was in a covenantal relationship with his father um, and uh, um, did not think it at all demeaning to be called a servant or a slave. Then you have the next one, the third one, C, is the parent-child relationship. Parent-child relationship. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 40, Ellen White wrote that that, uh, Jesus' favorite theme was the paternal character of God. The fatherly character, the parental character of God, that was his favorite theme. And if you, if you're, if you ever have a child, or if you have a child, or you ever, or you, or you ever do have a child, um, you may never say to that child that you're in a covenant relationship with them, but you are. It's one of the strongest covenants on the planet. Parents will give their lives for their children. That's really what covenant is more about. It's more about that than it is thinking of a will, thinking of a slave and master, It's much more about that kind of relationship. A covenant is, because in a parent-child relationship, you don't have this operating, you don't have, in the parent's parental viewpoint, you don't think of what's the cheapest way you can get by for your children. You want the best you can for them um, in every possible way, even if it brings some sacrifice, there's some sacrifice involved, even if it may involve uh, your life. In, in emergency cases. You're willing to give that up for them. And that's the, that's the, the next model of relationship. This is the one that God, is God, one of God's favorites, but his very favorite of all, I believe, is the next one, the highest one on the list. <clears throat> that is the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship. Because in a parent-child relationship, you don't have a choice involved in the part of the child, not to start out with. The child has total dependence on the parent, but hasn't chosen that. But in a marriage relationship, you have a choice. There's choice involved, and um, this is the this is the model that when God's talking about His covenant, that He loves to use this when He can. Now it's very sparingly used in Scripture, the relationship between between uh, God and His people in, as a marriage relationship. But it is used. It's used at just the right times. In fact, when you if, in Ephesians chapter five. It's the longest passage we have in the Bible of the relationship of how a husband and wife relationship should should be. The highest model for a husband and wife relationship. And when Paul comes down to the end of that in Ephesians chapter five, he says, What I'm really talking about here is what? Anybody know? What I'm really talking about. he have been talking about a husband and wife relationship all the way along. Christ in the, Christ in the church. So what he's saying is that the relationship we have with Christ, that that our covenant God's covenant with us. It's more like a marriage than like anything else. It's very interesting if you turn to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, where he's introducing, the, the, for the first time, he's introducing the concept of a new covenant. For the first time in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is quoted in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. It, this phrase does not occur there, but this passage, it's, it's the longest quotation. Longest single quotation anywhere in the Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament. It begins with 31. Um, Time is coming, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, etc. And it goes down to, and then in 32, it won't be like a covenant maybe with their forefathers and so forth. Then it goes down to the end of 32, it says, because they broke my covenant, though I was what? Though I was a husband to them. Isn't that interesting? So when God, the, when God wants to, um, uh, liken the covenant that he had with his people at here, by the way. This was a marriage relationship. This was not just a legal relationship. Now, when you, by, by evangelical scholars present this as just a cold, hard, legal model that Jesus gave them. He just had all these laws, and if they obey the laws, then things will work out well for them. If they disobey, then, then they go down the tube. Um, but that's not the way God described it. He described it as a marriage relationship, and so that's the that's the nature of his covenant. All right, what I want to do now is go to uh, let's go to the next page, and I want us to look at at uh, we're going to to look now at the new covenant. When I got started in this area, when I first read that book and didn't know how to answer some of the questions that were raised by this particular model. just in prayer, I was in praying about this, didn't know really where to go to start. Um, but I seem to be directed to first understand the new covenant before doing anything else, understand what the new covenant is. And so I'm gonna put down here, new covenant. And what's very interesting to me, this book I just pointed out to you, um, that I looked through to try to, they don't have a scriptural index in the back, unfortunately, or or actually they do have a scriptural index in the back. And the passage that, uh, this goes all the way through to the very, very last section um, when it says for further study. And this passage shows up that that we're gonna read, look at right now. That entire book is talking about the end of the law, The The Mosaic Covenant in Pauline theology, which is contrasting Old and New Covenant, only refers to this as something that should be studied for the future. It doesn't even deal with this. And yet, what we're gonna look at right now is the only definition anywhere in the Bible of what the New Covenant is. And you need to know this. You need to know. If somebody starts talking to you about the covenants and starts talking to you about, and, and starts getting into some of the passages we read, some of these difficult passages, you need to be able to say, well, tell me exactly what the New Covenant is. Because that's very, if you don't, if you don't have this one passage that we're gonna look at right now, there really is no explanation for what the New Covenant is. And God didn't give it to us once, He gave it to us twice, gave it to us verbatim, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, and this is God speaking. In both places, they're quoting God speaking. And God said, this is the covenant. All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. This is just, it's quoting, it's quoting uh, Jeremiah 31 that we were just at. Hebrews chapter 8. And somebody read verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 8, please. 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 8. Okay.
1: For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those, said, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my blood in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their other and their sins and their lawless
0: deeds I will remember no more. Okay. I just checked that scripture again, I was wrong. It actually doesn't even quote this in this book. Book on the Old and New Covenants. Entire book, very scholarly book. Gets good marks in the scholarly work, just, just published. Doesn't even quote this. How in the world can you talk about the Old and New Covenants and not quote this? I don't think it's possible. That's why you've got to know this. You've got to, you've got to know these scriptures. Have some reference in the back of your Bible or something, and chain reference them. Galatians one six to nine, Hebrews four verse two, and Revelation fourteen six, showing that the ever, what the everlasting gospel is—the gospel that was preached all the way through. And then you've got to know what the new covenant, what the new covenant is. The new covenant, I call this the new covenant DNA. Because this is what the new covenant is. Whenever you're talking about the new covenant, you have this in mind. You have to have this in mind. And it's based on four promises. And according to Hebrews um, chapter eight, verses 10 through 12, what's the first promise that God made when God says, this is the new covenant, right? Does he say that? In verse 10, this is the covenant, right? This is the covenant that I'm gonna make with the with with house of Israel. Um, and this is the one that he's talking about uh, in uh, verse eight, where he says, I'm gonna make a new covenant. By the way, just so I don't forget to to say this, what is the, uh, who was the new covenant made with? It was made with Israel, is that right? How do you know that for sure? Because it says it, right? Verse eight and verse 10 of Hebrews eight, both say, this is the covenant that God is going to make with Israel. It's the new covenant He's going to make with Israel, right? Who was the Sabbath made with? It's made with Israel. Not that it wasn't a creation, of course it was a creation. But in the in the covenant that God made it made with his people at Sinai, on the Sabbath is made with, with Israel. And in Exodus, in Exodus uh, 31, verses 12 and 17, God made the um, the Sabbath a sign between him and who? Between him and the, and the children of Israel. At Exodus 31, verses 12 and 17. And this is a passage that is general, that is often used by scholars to say that, that uh, the Sabbath is not for the new covenant era because it was made with Israel. Very clearly made with Israel, right? And what you do, when that, that'll, that'll come up. If you're studying with people, particularly here in the South, if you're studying with people about the Sabbath, that's gonna come up if they're knowledgeable about the scriptures. But the Sabbath, was God made a sign between him and Israel, not him and and New Covenant people, not him and the Gentiles, converted Gentiles. And so what you ask is, um, well, who was the New Covenant made with? And the answer, of course, is it was made with Israel, right? And so the question is, if the Sabbath is no longer valid because it was made with Israel, what about the New Covenant? And I've not found anybody yet that can answer that question. No one. I'm working right now on a, on a book on the Sabbath with three evangelical scholars. One Lutheran, one Presbyterian, and one Baptist. And... Um, and the, this particular book this pub, is going to be published by a non-adventist publisher, B&H Publishing. Um, they, contracted, they, they contacted these different scholars, and I just got in through the back door because Dr. Bakiyoki died in the middle of the project, and they got a hold of my book on the covenants, and so they asked if I would fill in for him. And, so, um, and the way it goes is we each submit our paper as to why we think our position is the most biblical one. And then, we get each other's papers, and we get to critique each other. And then, there comes a final response. Now, we're right in the middle of this. I've just sent, I've sent my initial uh, essay in, and then I, got, I received their essays, and I've sent my critiques of their essays in. And at the end of each of my critiques, I asked a question of every, I have several questions of every one of them, and of each one of them, it just happened to be, because of the way their paper was presented, I had a chance to ask the question. If the Sabbath, because they refer to the Jewish Sabbath, they're constantly referring to the Jewish Sabbath based on the fact that it was given to Israel. And so I was able to ask the question. I haven't gotten their responses yet, but I'm very curious to see what these responses are. I asked every one of them, if the Sabbath is Jewish because it was given to the Jews, given to Israel, why is not the New Covenant? Is the New Covenant also just a Jewish covenant? There is no place else anywhere in the Bible where the New Covenant is defined other than what God says, I'm making this covenant with Israel. I'm making this new covenant with Israel. So those are very, very important uh, points, but it doesn't deal with all the other stuff we've read yet. Um, They're very important points. Okay, what I wanna do is, let's identify these promises. What are the promises that were given um, that make the new covenant new? In other words, God's defining the new, Covenant, and he defines it by on the basis of four promises. And what are those promises? What's the first one? How does it actually read? Okay, where are you? Okay, well, I'm looking at Hebrews chapter eight because that's, yeah. Ezekiel, Hebrews chapter, yes, but it's, but it's not, God doesn't say this is the new covenant. That's right. Um, do you see that there in Hebrews chapter eight? Promise one, I will put my laws in your heart and mind. Okay, what's the next promise? I will be their God and they my people, right? Okay. And what's the next one? Get a better one here. I'm going to put everyone will know me, okay? We won't have to teach other people about God because everyone will know know them. So, I'll put down here everyone will know me. And the last one. I'll forgive, forgiveness of What's that? Forgiveness of bloody love. Yes. I'll forgive your sin. All right, this is the definition of the new covenant. This is what God said the new covenant is. Now what I'd like to do is to put a theological term, ascribe a theological term to each of these and if we were to put a theolo- if we give a theological term to this one what would we what would we call that? I'll put my laws in your minds and write them in your hearts. Sanctification? What about this one? I'll be your God, you'll be my people. What do you say? Not 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 just yet. Okay, restoration. Let's put down restoration. And you could say reconciliation. And uh, I'm gonna come back to this one. What about this one? Forgiveness of sin. Judgment. Justification. and Put down justification. Okay. Now, this particular promise, um, this is more challenging. Um, everyone will know me, and the least of them the great. You're not going to need to teach people. Are we at that place we live? Do we live in the new covenant era? Since Christ has come, we do, right? So. Is it true today that we don't need to teach our neighbor? That we don't need to teach anybody about God? Is that true today? Because we're in the new covenant era, right? One of the promises of the new covenant is you're not going to need to teach anybody anymore about God. Is that right? Is that true? Is that what that says in Hebrews 8 and verse 11? Um, it tells them what? Does it say that? What does it actually say? It says that you're not going to tell someone to know the Lord. You're not going to tell them to know the Lord. Why? Because they'll already know. Because they'll already know. Are we in a condition today where we don't need to tell people about the Lord because they already know? In fact, what evidence do we have that we should be telling people about the Lord? What's that? Yes, the Great Commission, right? It's our instruction. We're supposed to tell people about God, right? Okay, so what this is doing, this, is, this, this reveals a very important concept about the New Covenant. The New Covenant, while it's underway, is always reaching toward ultimate fulfillment at what time? What time? The Second Coming of Christ. The new covenant will never be totally fulfilled until Jesus comes. Not totally, now, it will, now of course, God's our God and we're his people, of course. He forgives our sins, yes, that's true. And he's writing his laws in our minds, but it, when Jesus comes and in, the, in the kingdom of God, this will be fully true, won't it? That the law of God will be written in the hearts and minds of everyone, right? He'll be fully, in fact, this language is right out of Re- Revelation 21 and 22 where it says, God will come and he'll dwell with us. He'll take up his, his residence here. And he'll be our, his, he actually says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Uh, he actually quotes this language. Are we going to need to teach people about God in the, in the kingdom of God? We need to teach people about the Lord. Is everybody gonna know him at that point? They are, right? So the, the new covenant is ultimately gonna be fulfilled at that time. It's a work in progress continues to be a work in progress, um, the new covenant. And uh, um, sins will be, there'll be no more than they'll be, they'll be fully, totally, not that they're not, not that we're not forgiven now. But, uh, um, okay, this this then is the new covenant. And when you look at this, sanctification, restoration, reconciliation, I'm gonna put down here, revelation and mission because it's God's purpose to reveal himself to people through the mission that he's given his church. Is that true? That's always been true through the history of the world. And where, where human beings don't reach, angels can go there. The, the revelation is gonna take place one way or another. Christ is the, is the light that lightens every human being that comes into this world. So that revelation is going to take place. And that, but God has invited the church to participate in that mission to, um, to help make sure that everyone ultimately will know him. Okay. Um, I'm going to suggest that, this, that the new covenant is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul said is... Um, is the, only, is the one gospel that has been true for, for all ages. It the gospel that was preached in Moses' time and it's, as well as the gospel that was preached in Paul's time. It's been preached throughout the entire ages. These promises, this has always been true. God's always been work at work to write his law in their hearts and minds. And that they will be his people, he'll be their God. Um, he wants to reveal himself to them and have his church fulfill the mission of being of participation in the revelation that he wants to make of his, of his glory and his knowledge and his character until everyone knows him and um, the, that he will forgive the sins of anyone who, who uh, uh, seeks his uh, repentance. Now, you have in your, in your outline, if you'll go to, I think it's page seven of your outline, you have a chart. And one of the things that Excuse me, you've got a, it's, it's, I guess, page nine. It looks like this. It's a chart that looks like this. One of the things I discovered in my study was that these four promises, you'll see down the left side of the side of the page, you have these four promises. The covenant across the top of the, across, going horizontally, you have, you have different uh, uh, things going on, but down the left side of the page, you have the covenant, it was made by God with Israel, and it's the the various gospel provisions or the promises of the, of, the, of the covenant. First of all, you I will write my law in your hearts, is the promise one, sanctification. I'll be your God to be my people, reconciliation. All will know me, that's mission or revelation. And I will forgive your sins, justification. Then as you move across from right to left, what I discovered was that these promises occur explicitly, or they're implied, in every covenant that God has made with His people. And they show up in clusters throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. You have the Everlasting Covenant, which we'll get to a little later. At creation, do you believe that at creation, God had, uh, Adam had God's law written in his heart and mind? I believe that's quite clear when God said He made everything good that his law was initially written in their hearts and minds. He didn't have to teach them these things that were written there. And was, was, were Adam and Eve um, his people and was he their God? Absolutely. Um, did they know him? Did, did people need to teach them about him? No, because they had personal communication with him, right? Um, and so they were new, now they didn't have their, they didn't need forgiveness at that point. But forgiveness was already in the heart of God. There's numerous scriptures that indicate that forgiveness. Should they, should something happen uh, that they that they f- fell away from Him, the provision for their forgiveness was already in God's heart. He'd already made provision for their forgiveness. And we saw that immediately after they sinned, when He came in and and uh, He told them about the about the uh, the seed that would come, and that the serpent would crush His heel, but that the, the seed would would. Uh, ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And so that provision was already there even though they didn't need it until they fell. And so really Adam and Eve were new covenant people, you could say. In fact, the new covenant the new covenant DNA is all the way through the Old Testament. And if you go back to page 1 in your outline or page 2 in your outline, And about the middle of the page it's number four and it's F. You see the New Covenant Gospel at Sinai? New Covenant Gospel at Sinai? Um, See how we're doing on our time here. It's three o'clock. I think we're not gonna look all these scriptures up right now. Ordinarily, Ordinarily, this is a six to eight hour seminar. And so we're trying to do a lot in a shorter period of time here. I think I'm going to skip that for right now, uh, skip going through the, the different uh, passages here, but there's an entire chapter in the book that just looks at the new covenant at Mount Sinai. Because what we find is that, the new, that, the, that um, these same four promises were given to God's people at Sinai. They were given before that as well. They were given to Adam and Eve before the fall, and after their fall, and to, to Noah and Abraham, and at Sinai. And I've given you the scriptures there, and I have a whole chapter where I, I unpack that. And just all the way through the, the Old Testament, these promises show up again. So what that tells us is the New Covenant was not something that just began when Jesus came. There is, some, there is a historical element there, and we'll talk about that momentarily, but, but, uh, but the New Covenant was, it's beyond just talking about historical periods and historical ages. It's talking about a certain response and a certain relationship that God has with us and, and, the, and the, that he wants us to have back with him. That's what New Covenant is about. Wherever these promises show up, since God himself said, this is the New Covenant, this is the New Covenant, God himself defined it. And it's, the new covenant is defined nowhere else in scripture except in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter eight, and it gives it exactly as those four promises. So you know more now, just if we did, we did nothing more than what we just did, you know more now. If you hold on to these things, then most people, even Bible scholars, have talked to you about the covenants. Now we have to do more with this yet, but um, let me just share a little story with you that I love this story because it's related to, to uh, um, the fact that this is a work in progress. The New Covenant is a work in progress. This is written by Morris Vennon. It's a story that he tells uh, in a book that he has called The Five Day Plan to Know God. He said, I had a friend who had a little girl who was three or four years old. My friend traveled a lot. One day he came back from a trip. When he came into the house, the little girl who hadn't seen him for several days came running to him and said, Daddy, look, I've learned how to write. And she had a tablet with all kinds of scribbles and smudges and blotches all over it. It was a mess. Like any good daddy, he said, Sure enough, you did learn to write. Isn't that wonderful? That's really good. And he carried on so much about it that her eyes got big and her mouth dropped open, and she said, What does it say, Daddy? (laughs) Then he went hot and cold. He didn't know what to say next. He stumbled for a moment or two. And then it came, it must have come to him from above. He sat down and said, here, sweetheart, I'll tell you what it says. It says here you're a little girl and you really wanna be able to write. It says you're trying hard to learn how to write. It also says you're a growing little girl and someday you will write beautifully. And she looked up and said, daddy, does it say all that? Yes, he said it does. And then, then it says, I struggle as a growing Christian. I produce my obedience, which is not real obedience at all. It's like scribbles and blotches and smudges I take my obedience to God and say, look, I've learned how to obey. As my heavenly father, he says, you know what your efforts tell me? They tell me you're a real Christian, that you really care. They say you're growing and someday you will know the real thing. And so we can look forward to the time of maturity of harvest in our own lives. We look forward to the time of harvest for the entire world. God is able to finish what he has begun in our lives. So long as we stay with him, we have nothing to fear. <clears throat> to me, that's the new covenant in progress. Um, we're, all, we're all a work in progress. And that's the beautiful thing about conventions like this and congresses like this, um, is that you have uh, the GYC uh, con- uh, conferences, that you have opportunities to just further that work along. Every time we, there's been, every, every single appeal has been made here. And finally, there was one day I knew I could go down for, when they're asking for baptism, I don't wanna be baptized again, everybody baptized. Some of these have been a little harder to go forward to, but I look forward to opportunities to respond to appeals because I just want more and more and more of what God has to offer, more and more. That's what New Covenant is. It's just wanting the highest and best that God has to give and keep responding to that. Every opportunity you get, keep responding to that. And uh, all right, well, we're right now at 316. Let's take a break. And at 3.30, we'll, what we're gonna do when we come back, we're going to, I'm gonna do one more thing. Let me think of it before we, before we go on, uh, before we come back. And then we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna come back and then I'm gonna present to you an alternative model um, <clears throat> to this model here that we looked at, that we established at the beginning of the program. There is another model. It's not a simple model, but I want to. I want you to ...present it, and then we're going to look at a couple of those very difficult passages that we looked at earlier and see how this model fits... ...fits, how this cannot fit those difficult passages. When you look at them carefully and closely, it cannot fit this, but it will fit another model. We'll look at that. First of all, I want to ask the question, if, in fact, it's true that the New Covenant was not new when Jesus came. It wasn't, when He came, it wasn't just, it wasn't instituted when Jesus came, that had been instituted long ago. It was before it was before creation,
2: um,
0: and in fact, it's very interesting to me. Or it was it was at creation even, but it's very interesting to me that right after right after he presents uh, the author of Hebrews presents the new covenant again from from Je- quoting Jeremiah and presents it as these four promises. Then he has this list of people in Hebrews chapter eleven, who were the we call it the Hall of Faith, right? these faithful people in the Old Testament. And he does that because essentially what he's doing, he's saying, here were new covenant people living in the Old Testament period. And that is exactly right. Because those people were people in, in, in whom these four principles were in process in their lives. They were new covenant people living before the, the, the New Testament era, so to speak, before Jesus came. So, why then is it called New Covenant? Why is it it called that? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to give you just two scriptures and then we're going to take a break. Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, verses 7 and 9. If somebody will read, where's our microphone right now? Right here, verses seven, Hebrews chapter eight, verses seven and nine. And what translation do you have? This is New, King James. New King James. Okay, King James. King James okay, is it seven and nine.
2: Seven
0: and nine. <coughs> I'm sorry, seven, eight, and nine. Seven, eight, and nine. Okay, so when you look at this, what, is, what do you get from this God is saying is gonna be different about this covenant than the one he'd made before?
1: Maybe it's something they can keep because they weren't able to keep the first one. It was flawless.
0: Something they'll be able to keep because they couldn't keep the first one? So was the first one harder?
1: No, no it, was, it had faults in it, I guess.
0: What was the first covenant? That a What's that? Mosaic law, was that the first covenant? Okay. Um, okay, well, in my mind, the first covenant was the covenant he made with Adam. There's no way to actually, I mean, you, Hosea does talk about a covenant with Adam. Hosea mentions that. Um, but the, the way, the way I answer that question, um, the first covenant was the new covenant. It really was, because these four promises are all the way through, from beginning all the way through. And I just share with people this chart. And the chart has all the scriptures to back this up. Um, and But the but he's talking here about the covenant that he made. He, he said, this is not going to be like the one that I made with those I brought out of Egypt, right? So what was the difference between those that he brought out of Egypt and... The covenant that he's making, what, what does he say the difference is? The, the, the difference he, th- how does he describe the difference here? In these passages we just read. Yes? He said the, of the covenant they made with his fathers in Sinai, they couldn't keep it, because they attempted in their own strength but He didn't say they couldn't keep it, he said they didn't keep it, didn't he? They didn't keep it. He found, he, uh, in verse eight he said, God found fault with the people, right? And in verse nine, um, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. That's the way mine reads. I'm not sure how yours reads, but in other words, because they didn't, they didn't, they weren't faithful to it, right? And so, what is it about the about the about just giving these same promises over again that's going to be different? Well, look at Matthew 21 for a moment. Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we have a a parable. Um, And the parable is, it's a parable that begins um, with verse 33. Parable about about these tenants. Somebody was a landowner, uh, owned a vineyard, and he leased out his vineyard to a group of tenants. And it sounds like when you read it all the way through that the lease contract was that the payment, the lease payment was that once once they began to, they didn't have to put anything down up front, but once they began to harvest from their vineyard, then uh, then the, the, the landowner would send some servants and take the first part of the harvest, right? And they, And the tenants agreed to that. So everything goes fine, they get a crop and the landowner sends some servants to get the first lease payment. And how do they treat the servants? Yeah, they beat them up. And so he sends some more servants. And how do they treat those servants? They kill them. And so finally, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what? I'm going to send my son. And what does he say when he's going to send his son? Yes, he said, they'll reverence him. Surely they won't do such a thing to my son. Um, in verse. Uh, Uh, Thirty-seven. Last of all, he sent his son. They'll respect my son. They'll reverence my son. He said. How did they treat his son? They killed him. Okay. Now think of this. Think of this, folks, in terms of new covenant. God has been making these promises all the way along to His people. How does He get these promises to His people? Through the prophets, right? What was done to the prophets? They were rejected continually they were rejected. So what does God do? He comes to a point in history and he says what? I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. And can you hear him saying, surely they won't do this to my son. Can you hear him saying that? So one of the things that makes the new covenant new is God sending his son with these same promises. And we're gonna actually see the promises lived out in this life. And that makes them new. In a sense, they're the same promises, but in a sense, they're not the same promises. Turn to 1 John, or or, yeah, 1 John chapter three. 1 John, um, chapter two, 1 John chapter two. That's just just before the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter two, and somebody please read verses 7 and 8 of First John chapter 2. And, and, and follow very carefully what, what, what he's saying here. First John chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. This is from the NIV Bible. Okay. Okay, what is this commandment is talking about? Do you know? Love. Yeah, commandment of love. And that's very clear because in Second John um, and verses uh, 5 and 6, he says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask we love one another this love is so that we walk in obedience to his commands. And his command is that you walk in love. And so it, that's the love commandment. Now, here's a question. Was this a new commandment? No. He says here, "I'm writing you a new command." In verse eight, doesn't he? 1 John chapter two and verse eight. Does he say, "I'm writing you a new, new commandment"? He
1: does, but he also says that
0: it at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So was it a new commandment? Yes or no? No. How many say it was a new commandment? It's new. Us. Yeah. How many say it wasn't a new commandment?
1: It's only new. It's only new because it's through him that's, that it's shown, is what he says here.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is this, is this All right. an for something
1: irrelevant? I mean,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was this a new covenant? Were these promises new? Did we have them from the beginning? Is it a new covenant? In a sense, yes, right? In the same way that the commandment to love we'd had from the beginning. And so he says, it's not, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, right? But yet, I am writing you a new commandment, Right? What made it new? You can see it through him. You can see it through him because we actually saw that commandment in living flesh. We saw that we saw what that commandment would do if somebody really lived it, right? So, is this a new commandment, a new covenant? It is because we've now seen it in Jesus, right? Once Jesus came, he lived this. Was the law fully, fully written in his heart and mind? Was he fully? God belonged to God and God to, and God to him, yeah. fully. Did anybody need to teach him about the Lord? Yeah. Certainly not after he was anointed, right? As a Messiah baptism, he, he didn't. He didn't need to have his sins forgiven, but he was the one that provided for, for the forgiveness of sins, right? So he was, he was the new covenant. And in fact, in the old covenant, in, the, in, the, in Isaiah, it actually calls him. It calls the servant of the Lord who is to come, the messianic servant, the covenant, where God says, I'm gonna give you this covenant. He's talking about Jesus. So in that sense, it's new and that we've seen it in a, in a whole new light. We've seen it lived out now. It's not, so it, So, this model this model is wholly, wholly misleading to say that the new covenant begins when Jesus comes. It's a complete misunderstanding of the covenant. And, and to trace back how, how you can show that for sure is the fact there's one gospel. The gospel was preached to, to uh, these people as, as well as here. And you have, you have uh, then show what God himself said the New Covenant is. You've got to establish that. And then I've given you that chart that shows that this is all these promises come in clusters all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11, you have a, you have a list of New Covenant people living in the Old Testament age, right? Okay, so, so now the next step we're gonna take is to replace this model with something that's more reflective of the biblical picture. And we're going to come back to those passages that sound like they're so anti. Whatever went on at Sila, they're so anti that. Um, and uh, that has led to the formation of this, this particular model. And so that's what we're going to do after our break. Now there were a couple of hands up real, real quick. Uh, back here was the first one. Okay, good. Next. That's a good way to put it. Because that's, that's exactly what John was saying about the commandment to love, right? He says he, in, in two verses back to back, he says this is not a new commandment. We've had it from the beginning, and yet it's a new commandment. Because we've seen it in him, right? It's exactly parallel. Yeah, let's take a break. Right now it's, I have on I have my, my uh, watch 3.30. Can we make it 3.40? We've got a lot to cover in an hour and a half.